scripture passage for us tonight, which is from um, the prophet Isaiah chapter 46. Bel and Nebo, the gods of Babylon, bow as they are lowered to the ground. They are being hauled away on ox carts. The poor beasts stagger under the weight. Both the idols and their owners are bowed down. The gods cannot protect the people, and the people cannot protect the gods. They go off into captivity together. Listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all you who remain in Israel. I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you. I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Some people pour out their silver and gold and hire a craftsman to make a god from it. Then they bow down and worship it. They carry it around on their shoulders, and when they set it down, it stays there. It can't even move. And when someone prays to it, there is no answer. It can't rescue anyone from trouble. Do not forget this. Keep it in mind. Remember this, you guilty ones. Remember the things I have done in the past. For I alone am God. I am God. There is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. I will call a swift bird of prey from the east, a leader from a distant land, to come and do my bidding. I have said what I would do, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn people who are so far from doing right. For I am ready to set things right, not in the distant future, but right now. I am ready to save Jerusalem and show my glory to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight we're going to go one step deeper. Like I said, we're going to look at Isaiah 46 and what Hadley just read and puppet masters. Let me pray. We'll take a look at this. Father, the truth is that we can have, we can see you as such a mediocre God. And we can feel like we have to work so hard to worship you. And then with the things that we just talked about, we don't see mediocrity there at all. It just grabs our attention and grabs our heart and grabs our love. I think you started to do it last week, but I'll ask you again, would you send your Holy Spirit to this room tonight, to these friends, and would you reverse that script? Would you make us just despairingly bored with these gods who cannot save us, so unimpressed, so over them? And would you create space in our hearts to see you as you are? When we do, we'll worship, we'll love, idolatry will vanish. So that's what I pray for. By the power of Jesus, amen. The idols of our hearts, the idols that our hearts are drawn to are like glasses. If you wear glasses, you don't really see your glasses unless you take them off. When they're on, you don't see them for two reasons. They're so close to your face, you can't. 
And because you don't wear glasses to look at glasses, you wear glasses to look through glasses and to see everything beyond them. So glasses are these things that literally are like right on your nose, right in front of your face. Could not be more obvious to you, but you can't see it for those reasons because we're not looking at it. Everybody else sees it, you don't. This is the way it is, again, with the idols that your heart has grown attached to. So close, so endeared to you, right under my nose, but maybe you were thinking this last week, maybe you're thinking it tonight too, like, man, I still don't have any clue what's going on in my heart. Like, I understand the examples he gives of the illustrations, but I went into my week last week and I couldn't detect any of this anywhere. Right on our nose, but we can't see it. Again, it's not as easy as if you had a bobblehead on your shelf that was like, people pleaser, and you go to pray to it every night. And you're like, please let everybody be happy with me and accept me. And you like rub its belly and do something. And then it's like, okay, I'll bless you. Here's some approval from people. We don't look at our idols that way. That would be easy. Easy peasy. Series is over after a week. Just like, here's a list of bad things. Don't do that. Not that easy. Again, we see through our idols. Your deepest loves are the lens you look through to see and interpret every hour of your day. We see every encounter, we filter every thought through the lens in that example of people-pleasing. So not the bobblehead on the shelf that's easy to detect, but the lens through which you're interpreting and experiencing every moment of your day, if that's a thing for you. It subconsciously colors everything. And you're left with like split-second decisions that don't feel like decisions. Which way should I go? This way or that way? It just feels like in your gut, like you just find yourself doing stuff. Like maybe, for example, you find yourself not asking the question you think your roommate needs you to ask. It would probably be loving to him to ask it. He probably needs someone to ask it, but you're like, I don't want him to be upset with me. So you withhold it. Or you're like, why did I just kind of low-key gossip that person? to make myself look better and to make them look worse. Like, why did I do that? Like that split second decision that you're not really thinking about, it just happens. That's what I mean of these loves are the lens through which you and I look at our day and experience our lives. Or for example, you just find yourself, dadgummit, I said yes to another commitment that I don't have space for because I really didn't want this person to think poorly of me or let them down. And so I'm like double overcommitted than I was yesterday. Does that resonate with your experience of reality? Split-second decisions, we're not really thinking it, we're feeling our way through. Our idols are the glasses, they're right on our nose, they're right under our nose, but we can't see them because we're looking through them and experiencing reality. We also um, don't see or detect these things. There's a, let me throw another metaphor at you. We'll get to the passage. The consequences of our false worship, of our idolatry, of these things that we get attached to, the consequences and the chaos that it brings into our life is like B.O. Everybody else smells it but you. I mean, even at a brain science level, uh, it, you can't smell your scent. Other people know you by your scent, 
but your brain after a day or two just filt- has filtered it out. I mean, something's got to really be wrong for you to smell yourself, but everybody else around you can. And the consequences and the chaos that our worship, our addictions bring into our lives, y'all see it in me better than I see it in me. You smell it, I can't. I'm used to it. It gets filtered out. So you know earlier when I kind of rattled off you know, the, the dynamic of our relationship with our idols is sacrificial and emotional and spiritual and there's a battered spouse syndrome element to it. It's also delusional. Does that word make sense based on what we've said? You don't know what's going on in your heart, but your roommate might. Your mom or dad might. Your counselor might. And the same with me. Other people smell the consequences and chaos um, better than we do. If you were here last week, you remember just some of the throwaway lines Isaiah said in Isaiah 44? He said, those who worship idols, which we said was all of us, including Isaiah, prior to God's mercy and his life liberating him, he said, um, those who worship idols, their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut down. They cannot think. So they're never able to stop and reflect, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? Is the thing that I'm living my life for that preoccupies most of my thoughts, is it even real? Is it a lie? And he said, not with a condemning tone, but with a a tone of pity and compassion. He said, poor deluded fools. They feed on ashes which is illustrative language of saying we sit down at Longhorn thinking we've got the best meal of our lives coming to us every meal and it's ash every time. So here's the implication of this. Here's a practical takeaway. Every week I want to give you another tool or two to search your heart, to talk to your roommates, to talk to your friends on campus. Try to keep it practical. Well, here's another tool for tonight. If you want to know what your heart has most fallen in love with, that's not an independent study. That's a group project. You can't go home and just like listen to this 10 more times and read the passage and be like, oh, it's this, this, and this. If you want to know what your heart has most fallen in love with, what good things that God made have been promoted in your heart to God things. If you want to know what good things have been inflated to God things in your life. Ask your roommate. Ask your closest friends. If you're close to your parents, little brother, little sister, you trust them, ask them. They will be able to smell and see what you can't. Not perfectly. They've got the same infection in their heart, but they'll be able to see it better than you. So let me illustrate illustrate this two different ways just to try to bring this down to earth, hopefully make it click a little bit better. Who do you think has a more accurate view of how idolatry is working in her heart? Your mom or her kids? And sorry, I'm picking on a mom in this illustration. I could have done a dad. So if you want me, if you want to just reverse that in your mind, fine with me. Who do you think understands how idolatry plays out in her heart better? Your mom herself? Let's say she listens to the podcast. Or you? So 
let's say your mom, um, your mom has this mentality of, I love my kids. I want my kids to be safe. I don't want them to have to unnecessarily suffer, to make mistakes that are going to ruin their lives. I want to protect them from that. And you're like, well, that's an admirable desire, right? I mean, who doesn't want a parent who wants to protect you? But you, so mom says that, but you have always experienced that as nagging, controlling, micromanaging, suffocating, helicoptering. Who understands what's going on in her heart more accurately, her or you? Who, under, who could say pretty quickly, uh, um, what gods cannot save your mom but she thinks can, or your dad and he thinks can? You could probably, like right now, you're making a list way faster than if I said, what about for you? What are the things they can't live without? Um, what, th- what good things have they made God things? You could answer the question, uh, your mom might say, well, me being proactive and caring and making sure I do everything for you to make sure you don't make a mistake or get hurt, that's actually brought peace to the family. It's brought peace to you. But in your heart of hearts, you're like, as soon as I move out of the house, like, I'm never going back. Christmas break was impossible for you for this reason. And she thinks it's brought peace, which is what she wanted. And it's brought conflict, just the inside kind of conflict that no one talks about or deals with. It's brought the opposite. A God who couldn't help, who couldn't save, who can't answer prayers, who can't deliver on promises. Make your life all about me, and I'll keep your kids safe. What it's delivered is your kids never want to be around you. Now, that might seem clear, but what if, what if, when it, what if I make it about you? What if I say, but what about in your heart? All of a sudden, I mean, I've been trying to think about this all week. My wife's in the back of the room. Um, Anna can tell me later tonight. I, I know what she would say, at least some of them. But you start thinking about yourself, and now you're in your mom's position where we've got a rose-colored glasses interpretation of these things that we love. They're not that big of a deal. So, for example, maybe you see yourself as a diligent, ambitious person. you got big dreams Big vocational dreams, you got to study hard to get there, and that makes sense. You work hard for doors to open. You can handle a lot of responsibilities. You tend to get the internship, the acceptance letter, the leadership positions, and in this culture, that's only ever celebrated. So you get praised a lot, and it feels good. And those are all good things, right? You wouldn't consider achievement like an idol in your life. You've never thought about it that way. You don't think it's a problem. It's not that severe. But when you think about it, fear of failure is paralyzing to you or really motivating to you. I want to avoid it. It'll get you up out of bed in the morning. I don't want that. I don't want a rejection letter. I don't want to not get into that school. So after tonight, um, you take me up on maybe the challenge to ask somebody close to you, what's it like to live with me? What is your experience of me as a friend? And then you give them permission to speak freely. And they give you an answer, 
And when you strip away all the fluff that they padded in there to make it a little softer, and you were left with the core of what they said, it sounded something like, you know, it's pretty lonely to be your friend. I mean, I love you and I know you love me, but it's pretty lonely. I've gone through a lot of, uh, a lot of struggles all alone. They've been secrets because you never asked or you noticed, but you never had time to really probe in there. I know it's important to take school seriously, but sometimes I wonder if you know how to turn it off. I wonder if you would ever want to turn it off. We can't smell the consequences and the chaos that our worship brings, but the people around us can. In the mom example, in the you example, or whatever connections that you're making in your own life. Verse one and two is a split screen. That's what's happening uh, in this passage. On one side of the screen, these are people subconsciously going about their day, trusting their idols to make life more secure. They're like the mom in that example. They're like the you in that example. They're not meta-thinking this. Bell and Nebo were two nicknames for um, some of some of like kind of the God of the gods, the Lord of Lords for Babylon. And this was kind of like a New Year's Day parade where they brought these gods out and they paraded them through the seats and everybody came out and was like, Babylon is awesome. It's like the military parades today where we, you know, some countries kind of parade their nuclear missiles around just to kind of signal the fact we're the best. We can destroy you all. We're powerful. That's what they were doing here. And that's what's happening on one side of the split screen. It's kind of an ordinary day. They're not in on the joke of what's happening. They're not seeing the glasses that they're seeing all of life through. They're not smelling the consequences of the chaos that this false worship has brought into their life or their country. And on the other side is the prophet Isaiah, kind of with the Bernie Sanders meme, sitting there so unimpressed with Bell and Nebo and the Babylonian gods, just so bored. And he's mocking them which is usually what the, idols, uh, what the prophets do with the idols of God's people. That's their preferred method of attack is comedy, satire, irony, because it gets deeper than other stuff. It's like a little water helps the pill go down. A little satire helps you laugh, and then you realize, oh, gosh, someone just stuck me with a sword. So Isaiah's on the other side of the split screen, and it's not just Isaiah showing these people what's going on, but it's the God who sent him. And God is not grumpily venting. Didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed that he was like, oh, I'm so been out of shape by you people and you're doing it all wrong. But he's saying what he's saying here in, in probing compassion. And here's his question, and it's to them, and it's to me, and it's to you. And he's saying, as he observes our loves, our, our chase, our pursuit of the things that good things that have become God things that dominate your emotions, that make you really defensive when they're threatened, that make you really scared when you think about potentially losing them. He asks you, yeah, but how's it actually going for you? How's that working out? So split screen, mom in the example over here, and then he's saying, but is that actually delivering? Is there peace? Is there a deeper relationship with your son or no relationship? The you in that example with achievement, but how's that really actually going for you? 
the stress, the anxiety, the I'm never prepared enough, never ready enough. I have all these accolades, all these awards, all these internships, and I still feel like a fraud. And again, in probing compassion, not a sarcastic condemnation, he's saying, but how's it really going? He's trying to get you to smell again and see again. The particular beef that God has with our false gods is this in this passage. Our idols, our gods, whatever those grandchildren of approval and control and power and comfort are for you, they promise to unburden you. They promise to unburden you, to save you from your troubles, to make your load lighter. But all they do is burden you all the more. They just add more weight to your load, more for you to carry. Verse one, Bel and Nebo, these so-called Lord of Lords and God of Gods, some dude has to go like pick them up and set them on an ox cart. And they have to be hauled away. And Isaiah says, the poor beast, the poor ox, look at him strain to carry the dead weight of these gods. These gods, the whole transaction with the Babylonian people is worship us and we will unburden you. And here they are, straining just to carry them down the road. Do you remember last week Isaiah said in chapter 44, the blacksmith, you remember when he was saying like the blacksmith stands at his forge and he hammers out this God? And he says the more that he works, the fainter and fainter he feels, the weaker he gets, the thirstier he gets. His worship is diminishing him, lessening him, emptying him, not filling him. It's adding to his burdens. That's God's beef. That's why he gets nose to nose and up in our business about this kind of stuff. And it's why whatever page of scripture you turn to, you'll find this. It's also that they promise to lift us up above the fray. Above obstacles that stand in your way. Above frustrating things that threaten you. But they just weigh you down all the more. Verse 2. The idols and their owners are both weighed down. He's got more beef. They promise to carry you forward when you're scared, when you're weak, when you're confused, when you don't know what to do, when all hope seems lost. They promise to advance your story, your life. And Isaiah says here, verse 7, um, how... Can they carry you forward when you have to carry them? Verse 7, they carry their idols. These people carry their idols. We carry our idols around on our shoulders. And he says they can't even move. You set them down and they're still there next week. They can't move. They have no power. In other words, he's saying you're the puppet master of the puppet you worship. Our idols are the little ventriloquist doll and we're trying to have an intimate relationship with them. But we're the ones having to make them talk. We're having to answer our own prayers to them. We're having to make excuses for their failures to show up for work. We're supplying both sides of the relationship. Doesn't that sound exhausting? 
Doesn't that sound like it's just gas for resentment and anger or despair? Or if you're a workaholic, just working harder, 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 harder because you blame yourself? So they promise to carry us forward, but we have to carry them wherever we go. We're the puppet master. They promise to hear your prayers. They promise to meet you in those like midnight moments when you're all alone and you're crying or you're praying and you need to be delivered. You need someone who can help, who can make things better. In verse seven, when someone prays to them, radio silence. It cannot rescue you from trouble is what he says. His beef with the things that we worship, with the good things that we have elevated and inflated to God things, they promise to captivate you, entrance you, inspire you, but they make you captive. They promise to like catapult you out into your best life, they enslave you. Verse two, the second part, both idol and worshiper go off in captivity together. Do you see what's happening here? This is what makes God angry about our idols. Other things make him angry too. He says elsewhere, I will not share my glory with gods that are not gods. I will not share my glory with idols. But you know what makes him most mad about idols? They destroy your life. And he says something about it. This is God's intervention. You know, last week I shared you the poem of David Sheff about his son. He said, fortunately, I have a son, my beloved son. Unfortunately, he's an addict. Fortunately, he's in recovery. Unfortunately, he relapses. Fortunately, he's in recovery. Unfortunately, he relapses. Fortunately, he's still alive. Fortunately, your maker and your God, who is real, who will save, who can save, doesn't watch you walk off the cliff without a word. He stages intervention after intervention after intervention after intervention. I've shared a story with one of you a few days ago. We were meeting up and you were talking about future decisions that you've got and just struggle to find clarity and like what to do. It's like there's five roads ahead and they all look the same. And the clock is ticking down. You got to make a decision. And I, we were just reflecting. I was thinking back on some of my story of, you know the David Foster Wallace quote, worship money, you'll never have enough. Worship beauty, you'll always feel ugly. He doesn't say this, but I could add it in. You worship clarity, you'll never be able to make a decision because you'll never have it. Worship certainty, you'll always be uncertain and scared to make a move. You'll always feel like you're out on a limb up the creek without a paddle, all by yourself. And that was me. With all the big decisions that I had after college, or well, really in college, what am I gonna major in? That wasn't as big. Then I graduated, and it was like big decisions. Grad school or not, move back to Atlanta and just work at a restaurant and try to figure out what in the world am I here to do or stay in Athens. And then I go to grad school here, and then it's decisions of, is God calling me to ministry or not? It was like a complete enigma to me. Eventually, God leads me forward, gives me a little bit of clarity in that. And then I'm like, but am I ready to leave Athens? Am I ready to go off to grad school again and seminary? Or, and then it's like, do I want to date? Should I date? Am I ready to date? Or should I not? Then I'm dating Anna long distance. And then it's always like, should I get married? Should I not? Am I ready to be married? Am I going to ruin my marriage? 
How do I know we're right for each other? This God called clarity promised to bless me, and so I obeyed its every command. Get more of me. I went on the circuit. Anyone who would meet with me, pastors, counselors, other friends, and I would pour out the details of my decision, my lack of clarity, my lack of certainty. I was like, hey, help me make sense of this. Light bulbs would go off. 12 hours later, I'm back to square one. And whatever you told me the time we met up, then I'd go with that for 12 hours. And it brought me to the end of myself. It brought me like debilitation, paralysis, shame. Why does everybody else have it figured out but not me? This God promised to bless me and so I obeyed every command it gave to me because I was so afraid of it cursing me, which it threatened to do. You dare take a step forward? Yeah, you say you have Jesus. You take a step forward without perfect clarity? You make a decision without perfect certainty? You'll be doomed. So I wouldn't go. I couldn't see that this was happening. I saw the world through the lens of certainty. It's a good thing. I need it. I was the puppet master the whole time. I'm praying to God to get clarity, and he's not having any business with that. He withheld it. Because he's like, I'm not going to finance your self-destruction. James says in chapter 4, you pray and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. We have spiritualized our idols and we pray to Jesus to get more of them. And he's like, no dice. None. Because I love you. And I'm not going to participate in your destruction. I'm going to restore you. But that's what it means to be the puppet master of the very gods that we worship and that's why God won't drop the issue. Here is, here is to summarize all of what we've just said. Um, Ray Orland put it well and put it succinctly. He said, look, if a God has to be carried, how can it carry you? If a God can't help itself, how is it supposed to help you? If a God needs your strength, how can it strengthen you? So God wants you to stop looking at your idols with rose-colored glasses. In fact, he'd like us to take the glasses off and to start looking at the glasses and to scrutinize them and to compare them to him. He says that. Verse five, to whom will you compare me? We already do, by the way. Who do you compare me to? He's saying, let's go. Let's have the beauty pageant, but let's turn the lights up so we can actually see these gods. And it looks like, you know, just atrocious looking people with no talents and no passions and they don't even want world peace. And you're like, ooh. God's like, let's go on stage. Let's have the arm wrestle. Let's compete. Let's see how they stack up to me. Do you see, I hope you're beginning to worship. This is a God who's willing to fight for people who usually don't, couldn't care less about him. He's still willing to fight to win your love back, even though you don't deserve a God who will fight to win your love back. And I certainly don't. We, don't, we haven't earned that. He's still talking to us, addicts. Relapse, recovery, relapse, recovery. He's still talking. And he wants us to to look with him as he helps us see through his lens what our idols really look like. 
all that they cannot do. He wants you to become bored. He wants me to become so unimpressed and so bored that we're just like, yeah, it's not doing it for me anymore. Used to be a big deal. I see through that now. He wants us to become unimpressed with gods that cannot save you but can ruin you. So I said earlier, if you really want to understand what your heart wants most, you got to find the people closest to you, someone who loves you and can shoot straight with you and be honest. They don't fill little intervention rooms with like people pleasers who are like, I think, I mean, I don't know why they're here. I think you're doing pretty great. I mean, maybe dial it back a little bit. It's the people who love you, who put it all on the line to open your eyes. Verse three. Is this, one of, is this a God who fits that description? Listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all you who remain in Israel. He says, you think I'm mediocre? You think I fail the beauty pageant with your other gods? The things that I made? You've fallen in love with stuff I made and somehow I'm uglier than the stuff I made. Somehow I'm less compelling, less captivating, less beautiful, less powerful than the things that I made. He says, okay, well, let's, let's, let's go down memory lane. I have cared for you since you were born. I've carried you since before you were born. We're not talking about a puppet that you have to carry. Now we're in new territory. Here is a God who says, before you were born and could do anything about it, I carried you. He says, I will be your God throughout your lifetime until you've got gray hair. I made you. You didn't make me. You don't have to prop me up like all these other gods. Hey, it's going to fall over. Put some shims on the other side of that. Get a cart so we can carry this thing around. He said, I made you. You don't control me. I'm no puppet. You don't pull strings and rouse me to action. I do whatever I wish, is what he says. Verse 10 at the end of it. This is a God who sees the true dimensions of our idolatry and he keeps bringing it up because he knows that us seeking refuge and seeking calm from the storms and stress of life and porn is just burdening you all the more. And it's making you want it all the more. And it's addicting you all the more. And Jesus wants to unburden you. And he says, you stubborn people, you people who are so far from doing right, he tells us the truth in a loving tone because living for others' inclusion is not, as we think it is, lifting us up. It is drowning us. It's fueling self-hatred. It's pushing you away from people. It's making you awkward in normal encounters with people. It's fueling social anxiety. It's making you self-select out of community because you think you believe the lies. Nobody wants you there. But Jesus wants to lift you up and carry you forward. Because praying to God for clarity, something that he'll drop out of the sky so you can make your decision, he knows will not benefit you, but giving you clarity in his heart for you and who he is for you will help you move forward. That was the only thing that ever let my feet start moving and let me start making decisions in my life and moving forward and freed me from the God, the, the, the tyranny of clarity and certainty. The way you know you're free from something is you walk away from it. 
shouted these commands, shouted these threats. You dare walk forward, Ben, with 50% or 60% or 70% clarity? You don't have all of me? And God brought me to a point and said, I don't need you. I have a God who's already waiting for me in tomorrow. I have a God who has laid it all on the line for me. I have a God who does protect me, unlike you. I have a God who does deliver, unlike you. I have a God who does show up, unlike you. I have a God who does carry me, unlike you. Tomorrow's fine. I want to end here. Tim Keller said, the secret of freedom from an enslaving sinner, we could add idol, is this. You have to worship God. You have to sense his greatness. You have to be so moved by who he is and what he has done for you When you taste him, you will lose your appetite for sin. We will lose our appetite for these lesser gods. That's what we said last week. We worship our way into ruin or worship our way to revival. You don't need worship music to worship. You will worship when you see God as he is. And you need two things to see God as he is. His word and his spirit both of which he's given you. Both of which are there for the asking. Are you seeking him? Will you be willing to pray in desperation? I want to hunger for you. I want more of you. I want to be bored with these idols. I want to get a glimpse of you. I want to worship you. He says, you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me 100% of the time because all the while I was seeking you. Next week, we go a foot deeper. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, open us to your word and open your word to us. The biggest thing I just ask for again is show us yourself because when we see you, even a little tiny glimpse of you, we will worship. And false worship will evaporate like the dew in the morning. Pray this in Jesus' name and by his power.